Let's pray together. Shall we do that? Gracious God, uh, we thank you, Lord, for your word this morning, and we come to you, God, this morning, and we, we confess that we are so dull of mind at times. We are so dull, not very sharp. Um, our hearts sometimes also are cold. We don't, we don't warm up quickly to the things of you. We have many things that distract us. And Lord, even in our worship time, we've sung incredible lyrics and uh, words that we, we want to mean with all of our hearts, for you are worthy. And yet there's always this, this difficulty, Lord, to really reach in and touch you, Lord. We pray, would you be pleased to reveal yourself this morning more and more, even as you have, would you continue that we might gaze upon you, Lord Jesus, and that you might be pleased to reveal hidden things to us and that we might have ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 4? And uh, it's a privilege to be able to continue in this Mark series. We've been at it for a few weeks. And uh, Mark chapter 4, and we're going to read beginning in verse 1. Um, many times as we look at God's Word, we're, we're inclined to want to kind of take a small section and really dig deep and burrow down and see the details of the text. And then other times it's beneficial if we actually take a few steps back and get a panorama and get a lay of the land and understand the context. And this morning, I feel like we're going to do the second of those two. We're going to take a step back. We're taking a rather big swath of Scripture, and we're going to look at what Jesus has to teach us about, about the kingdom through parables. But Mark is very intent on presenting them in such a way that we kind of see some of the beginnings of his ministry on parables and what he has to teach us about the kingdom. So beginning in Mark chapter 4, would you stand with me? And let's take a look at this portion together. <clears throat> Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that had gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat, and he sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching he said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns. They grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. Then Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. And he said to them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside everything is said in parables, so that they, they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. And Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. 
And as soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, or even a 100 times what was sown. He said to them, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears, let him hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And even more, whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And he said this as well, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, and then the full head in the kernel. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. And again he said, what shall we say that the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground, and yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. And with many other similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. May God bless his word. You may be seated. <clears throat> There's an old fable that goes like this. Long ago, Truth walked down the street as naked as the day that she was born. People ran from her. They ran into their houses and closed her out. She was turned away from every door in the village until Parable found Truth huddled in a corner, shivering and hungry. Taking pity on her, Parable gathered her up and took her home. And There she dressed Truth in some of her own fine clothes, warmed her up, fed her, and sent her out once again. Clothed in story now, Truth knocked at again at the villagers' doors and found a ready welcome into every home. They invited her in to eat at their tables and warm herself by their fire. And ever since that time, Truth and Parable have been the closest of friends. <laughs> it's a reminder, this little fable, of just how resistant the human heart is to the raw and cold and hard facts of the truth of God sometimes. We are reminded of that in Scripture at various times. We're reminded of it in our own experience. Remember the story of Nathan the prophet who, who went to David after David had sinned with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 12 and how the, the only way that David would receive and pronounce judgment on himself was if at first Nathan presented a parable. And so he did and, and therefore David then could see the truth of what God was saying. It's incredible that when, when we think about it, that, that this book we hold in our hands, the Bible, that over two-thirds of it is narrative literature. 
Over two-thirds of the Bible is, is the story, the grand story of God, all told with little smaller stories about the narrative of, of the journeyings of the people of God and what they went through. And somehow as we read it, we, we resonate with the, the people of God and we understand more about ourselves in this book. Frederick Buechner has said that the story of any one of us is in some measure the story of us all. Another author says it this way. <clears throat> he says that we humans are storytelling organisms who individually and socially live storied lives. And so the study of narrative is the study of the way humans experience the world. And so as we open up some of the parables of Jesus, we understand that Jesus, who knew what was in a person, chose to approach his ministry now in a, in a form very unique to Jesus, and that was identified as the parable. The word parable in Greek is actually a compound word. It's the word para and balo. Para is the word that means to place something beside something else, para. And balo is actually where we get our word ball from. It means to throw or to place. And so the idea of parable is you take something and you place it beside something else for the sake of a comparison. And usually the parable is telling a comparison between something that is concrete and real with something that is abstract or, or spiritual perhaps. And so Jesus perfected this way of telling story through parable. For much of church history, parables were interpreted allegorically. That means that from the time of Augustine, for example, he would take a parable and he would, he would make it stand on all fours. He would, he would make every point of the story have a meaning in real time and real life. Uh, Martin Luther and, and uh, as well as John Calvin, when it came to the Reformation period, they didn't really change that way of interpreting parables too much. They also approached many parables allegorically. It was not until 1888 when a German scholar by the name of Adolf Julicher insisted that each parable should have just one point. This was in response to abuse of parables, making them say whatever the author wanted them to say. I remember in the 1980s when I was in seminary, I was taught that I had to make sure that only one point came out of every parable. But of course, when we look at the parables, we understand that that's very rigid. In fact, the parable of the soils or the sower that we read this morning, Jesus himself in giving us the interpretation reminds us that there's a lot more than one point to gather from this parable. And so in recent decades, we're finding that many people that are writing about the interpretation of parables are letting the story speak and understanding the story more at uh, having layered meanings and so on. Sometimes <clears throat> when we look at parables, we, uh, we tend to jump to one conclusion and sometimes we jump to another. Very seldom does Jesus in the Gospels give us the interpretation though in verse 34 we're told that when he was alone with the disciples he explained everything is that to mean that that he literally explained every parable that he ever spoke to the disciples we're not sure all we know is that he, that we only receive uh, about maybe three or four parables in their interpretation from Jesus and we have the privilege in Mark 4 of getting one of them the parable of the sower now, 
I want to suggest to you, as you'll see in your green insert, that there's, there's three explanations of why Jesus uses parables. And there are three parables in the passage that we've read. And what Jesus <clears throat> is doing is, in a sense, he's in essence explaining why he uses parables. And then he's telling parables about why he uses parables. And it's, it's an interesting way of approaching it, isn't it? He's explaining why he uses parables. And then he says three parables, at least, as to why he uses parables. This whole section is all about the secrets of the kingdom, which are given or revealed to those who have faith, and they're concealed or withheld from those who do not have faith. You'll notice in your insert, there's a key word. It's used 13 times, and if you read with us, you'll see that the word is here. 13 times in this 34 verses, the word here is used. And the common phrase that's repeated twice in this little section is, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. That comment is made 15 times in the Gospels and in the book of Revelation. 15 times, Jesus, the risen Lord, says, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. <clears throat> so let's ask ourselves to begin with, why might it be? Why is it that the secrets of the kingdom would ever be hidden or concealed? Why would it that God would have secrets of his kingdom hidden? Well, the answer begins in our first parable, the parable of the soils. And so let's take a look at it found in chapter 4 verses 3 to 8. And incidentally, this is, this is the first parable that the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is the first parable in all three of those gospels. Perhaps it was indeed the first parable that Jesus ever told his disciples. And so we read in Mark 4, beginning in verse 3, a very interesting little story. Would have been familiar uh, understanding to, to all that listened. The interesting thing I found as I studied it is that the word in verse 1 for the word shore in the NIV is actually the word soil. So here is Jesus and he is telling a story about a man who took seed and went out into the field and planted it in soil. And he said that the interpretation of that parable is that it's about the preacher that goes out and takes the word of God and plants it in the hearts of men and women. And there Jesus, in the moment that he's saying that, is doing exactly that. He is sharing the word, and there the people are on the soil, it says. The soil, the shore, alongside of the Sea of Galilee. And um, so Jesus then proceeds to use parable. You know, I want to just, as an aside, mention that really what Jesus is doing is not that unlike what we see in the book of Revelation. We know from our first three chapters that we've looked at in the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus is beginning to receive severe opposition from the religious leaders. In fact, if it weren't for the fact that, that they were trying to nail him down, they probably wouldn't give him the time of day. But Jesus is being, being really opposed by the religious leaders. And it is in this moment, G. Campbell Morgan, a an old scholar said that this was why he began at this stage of his ministry to use parables because he had to bring in cryptic form the truth of God that would be heard and listened to and understood by his followers that had faith and just be a story to those that, that did not have faith. And in the book of Revelation, the revelation that we see in our Bible is apocalyptic literature 
that began in the Jewish world around 300 years before the time of Jesus, and it had cryptic, coded, uh, symbolic language. Numbers meant something. Things like uh, angels or seals or bowls and all these different things had a meaning in that genre of literature. And in many ways, the Revelation was a tract for tough times when it was written by John the Apostle on the island of Patmos because the church was going through severe persecution and the, the book of Revelation was given in its original and first intent to encourage those people who were facing that kind of opposition. But it was given to them in cryptic and coded symbolic language that only they would understand and others that would look on wouldn't understand it. It's not unlike what Jesus is doing with the parables. And so as we open our, our Bibles and see in this first parable, uh, we see that G Mark or Jesus presents a very familiar story about a farmer who, who slung a, a sack of seeds over his shoulder and walked out into his field where he had prepared some ground. And the picture that is described is very common and, and, and as he's going along, broadcasting the seed across the ground that has been prepared, some of that seed falls on the pathways that are between the fields. And that, that ground is hard, and so you can almost imagine the birds following the sower behind him, like we see in farmers' fields today when there's planting going on or tilling. And the birds came along and snatched it up as quickly as it was planted. Some of the seed, it says as well, fell on rocky soil. And when this idea of rocky soil is given, it's not the idea of boulders or stones in the soil. It's the idea of a shallow piece of ground where six inches to a foot underneath the ground is a, a basin of rock. So that this plant might get started, but as it root, its root begins to grow, it is stopped. And so as soon as it, the, the rainy season stops and as soon as the scorching sun comes out, the plant withers because there's no deep root. And some of the seed fell along the edges of the fields where the, the, the thorns and the thistles and the weeds had not been taken out. And that seed falls there and it gets a start made, but pretty soon it is choked out because it can't grow beyond a certain stage of maturity. And then finally he says there's some seed that falls on the good soil and it produces a, a harvest. It's good soil, it responds and there's 30, 60, 100 fold. There's the good, the better, and the best stages of production there in this soil. And in verse 13, you'll notice that Jesus could tell that his disciples were having trouble understanding this first parable. And so he says, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand any parable? It's almost to see, say Jesus is saying, this is not a hard one, <laughs> you know? And here he is, and he explains it to them then, for the 12 are in training. Verses 14 to 20, we have the interpretation of this parable. And uh, each type of soil, Jesus says, represents a different person's response to the Word of God, and the seed is the Word of God. Some people have hearts that are hard. The moment that they receive the teaching of the truth of God, the Word, the Gospel, they're so opposed, their disposition is in opposition, in hostility to God, they won't even let that word get a start in their minds or their hearts, and so it is stolen away by Satan, says. I wonder if Jesus wasn't thinking about some of the religious leaders and the Pharisees that had no time of day, they wouldn't even give Jesus, get to first base with some of his teaching. Secondly, he says that some of the seed 
on the rocky soil is, is the people that, that um, respond. They hear the truth. They receive it with joy and excitement, just like they receive everything with joy and excitement. You see, these are the people that, that are just positive about everything. They'll, they'll say yes to They'll try anything. So they receive it with joy and excitement. But they do not grow any root of faith. What does that mean? Well, I think what it means is that these are people whose hearts are not really interested in examining themselves in sinfulness or the, the, the real deity of Jesus. And they're, they're just so superficial, so shallow, as you would say. They're not going to sustain the gaze of their soul upon Jesus enough to grow a root in him. They're not going to allow the gaze of their soul to turn inward long enough, introspectively enough, to see that they are sinners that stand before a holy God. And they're not going to let that grow deep enough to put the two of those things together to see that only Jesus is the solution for their sinfulness before God. So whatever might look like faith, really, is, is never given a chance to grow a root. It says in the Bible in verse 17 that they fall away. The word is scandalizo. It, they're scandalized by this. They're scandalized. The word could be translated, they're offended. Have you ever met someone that's offended at the gospel, at the fact that, that maybe they have something they need from God, that they're sinners? And so they're, they're, they fall away. Thirdly, we read that some people are like the seed sown among the thorns. They hear God's word and they respond. And, and this is perhaps the most difficult soil for us to think on and apply. And we need to be alert and take warning in this. These, these are people that might, might look like born-again Christians. These are people that are churchgoers. These, these are people that grew up in Christian homes that were given a good start in life in faith. These are people that might even appear very religious today. But the Bible says, and Jesus says, there are three things that are so poisonous to them that it actually robs them of the beginning of faith in Jesus Christ. And these three things, I'm sorry to say, are already in your life and in my life. And uh, I don't think anyone is going to deny that this morning. The three things that Jesus mentions are the worries of this life. Put up your hand if you don't have any worries in this life. <laughs> the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth. And you know what, folks? If you take a trip around the globe, you'll know that everybody sitting in this room today is a wealthy person the deceitfulness of wealth, and then the desire, the desire of things that you want. Boy, do we have a lot of those in our hearts too. Jesus does not condemn you for worry, for wealth, or for even other desires. It's, it's where they take root and where they grow and what they do in the soil of your heart that matters. And the person that Jesus is describing allows the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things to actually crowd into the heart 
our hearts, and whatever portion of God's truth has been sown there from your childhood or from preaching or from you reading your Bible in the morning or whatever, it is choked out, it is suffocatingly poisoned, and it cannot have a chance to grow. It cannot bear any fruit, no head of grain, and it, it eventually dies. Now maybe you know someone like that. They were given a good start. They, they seemed to have faith. But now they're, they're living in another world, another paradigm. Very sad. There's a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you want to take a scoot over there with me. And there's a warning that Paul gives to people such as ourselves in 1st Timothy chapter 6 and he says beginning in verse 9 <clears throat> that people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil and some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, men of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. Do we see in that passage that Paul is saying to Timothy that faith, if it is anything, it is a fight. Faith, if it is anything at all, it is a fight. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life. The reason it's a fight is because there are so many things warring against our souls. That's why it has to be a fight. You will not coast into the kingdom, Jesus says. You will not just find yourself there one day. You will have to fight the good fight of the faith, to say no to many things in order to say yes to the important things. So that the, the other things, the three things that Jesus is talking about, do not choke the good things that God is planting in your heart. And so the third soil, I think, is one that we need to reflect on. Finally, Jesus says that the seed that is sown in the good soil, the prepared places, is the kind of person that has a heart ready to listen to what God has to say. Here's the word. The other three have heard the word, but this soil does more than just hear the word. It does two more things. It accepts it, and that word has the idea of admitting, believing, and by implication, delighting in, and then producing a crop. The word produce here is to mean to be fertile. And so, the person that Jesus is describing is the person that hears God's word and the conscience is sharp and the spirit is open and the heart is willing and the mind is ready and we receive the word and we respond and it re results in fruitfulness, a Godward life. And uh, the result is 30, 60, or 100 fold. 30, 60, or 100 fold. You ever thought where you're at in that? Are you a 30, a 60, or a 100, or a 45? And so we think on that. So the four kinds of hearts that Jesus describes, 
first of all, is a hardened and insensitive heart. Secondly, the impulsive or superficial heart. Thirdly, the distracted or defeated heart. And then finally, the receptive or victorious heart. And the interesting thing about the, the fourth heart is that the hearer that's described by the fourth seed in soil is, is, does exactly what the other threes can't do. The other three can't do. In other words, a good hearer welcomes the word immediately so Satan can't come in and snatch it away. A good hearer welcomes it deeply so that it cannot be withered by opposition and persecution. And a good hearer also welcomes it exclusively so that it cannot be allowing other concerns to strangle and choke it out. And so we respond, we should respond immediately, we should respond deeply, and we should respond exclusively to what God ever points you in the direction of in his word. So why are the secrets of the kingdom ever hidden? According to this first parable, the secrets of the kingdom are hidden to some people. The answer, according to this first parable, is because of their hearts. Because their hearts are not ready to receive the word. And that's why Jesus speaks in parables, as Mark 4 10 says the secret of the kingdom has been given to you but to those on the outside everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing never perceiving ever hearing never understanding otherwise they might turn and be forgiven it's not that Jesus doesn't want people to turn and be forgiven of course he does it's simply that their hearts will not receive so Jesus spoke in parables to reveal the truth to those who seek him and to conceal it to those who are not ready to seek him he, reveal, he speaks parables to provoke deeper thought among the hardened because the straightforward propositional truth would have been dismissed and forgotten, but the form of a story would land and lodge in someone's mind and they would go home thinking about it. Jesus hid the mysteries that would affront and presented them in stories that would invite. And then Jesus goes on in verse 21 to, to actually use another metaphor of a lamp and this, this helps us interpret the previous verses. Jesus definitely wants things to be made known. He wants the secrets of the kingdom to be made known and understand, even though he presents them in parabolic form. And he says it by this way. He says in verse 21, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. The literal uh, translation of this is, does the lamp come to be hidden? Jesus is talking about himself here. He is saying, I as the light of the world did not come to be hidden. I came to be made known. Of course that's my goal. But men love darkness instead of light. The, the religious leaders want to kill me in my first year of ministry. They won't listen to me, and so I speak in parables that ever be, be ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they would turn and be forgiven. And so Jesus uses yet, you might call it a parable, you might call it a metaphor, but he uses the lamp. And then he goes on to speak of two more parables that we don't have time to unpack very far, but there are two little parables also about seeds. The fact that they're about seeds reminds us that probably Jesus hasn't changed his theme. He's still talking about the secrets of the kingdom being made known. And the one story is about a farmer who goes and sows his seed, and whether, whatever he does, night or day, there the kingdom is happening. 
That's a, it's an incredible story. Then the, the story of the mustard seed, the smallest, tiniest little seed they knew in that day grew into the largest plant, 10 feet high, that per- birds would rest in. What is Jesus teaching about the kingdom through those little parables, if not that they defy human logic? That, that you, will not, you will not figure them out. You'll not figure out the kingdom fully. You cannot wait to empirically, scientifically prove the existence of God or something else. God cannot be reduced to science like that. God cannot be reduced to that. It's like trying to put all the oceans of the earth into a a little spoonful of, of water. God cannot be confined by our ways of thinking or proving what is rational or logical or true or not. And yet having said that, I I don't want to ever suggest that the Christian faith is not rational. Because if you go into the field of apologetics and understand all the reasons given for believing, you will find that they far outnumber anything else that's given as a theory for why we exist and finding meaning in life and in the afterlife. Nothing else compares. We have a reasonable faith. But it's not a faith that can be proven by any kind of empirical way. In the end, you will need faith to trust that that seed, that little seed that was planted that you'll never see again will somehow appear as an incredible plant. You see, faith, many people think faith is this stepping out into the dark. Well, I guess I'll just, I'll just, I'll just believe. I don't believe God ever asks us to do that. I don't believe that faith is stepping into the darkness of unknowns. I believe that faith, as it's described in Scripture, is always a stepping into the light. Always. That's why God gave us this book, that thy word is a a lamp unto my feet and a light for my path. God has made himself known. God has revealed himself. In fact, not only in general big ways like creation and conscience, like Romans 1 and 2 say, but in incredible ways privately, if you will just look and not have a hard heart that lets the seed be snatched away, you will see that God is making himself known to you. He knows you by name. And he wants you to respond to the light, the knowledge, the revelation of himself to you. He wants you to step into the light, not the darkness. Will your heart be ready? Mark concludes this section in verses 33 and 34, and he says, with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. The 20 or 30 odd parables that we have in the Gospels are not all the parables that Jesus spoke. One day when we get to heaven, we'll ask him, tell us some more stories. And it says that he, he, he did not say anything to them without using parable. But when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. And so I want to say in the words of Jesus today to you, to all of us, let him who has ears to hear Let him hear. Let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church and to you as an individual. Let's not be dull of mind or heart. You know, so many people respond to God kind of like a 
Like an airline passenger responds to the stewardess when she's saying, take the little pamphlet out of your seat pocket in front of you and look at the emergency exits closest to you and all that stuff. What are people doing on the plane? They're yawning. They're talking to their neighbor. They're looking at their iPad or something. They're, they're distracted. And the person at the front is talking about, if this thing goes down, this is going to save your life. <laughs> and, they're, and they're thinking of other things. Incredible. The words of Jesus are life for us. It's the seed that will get planted in your heart and will change your destiny forever and ever. And I ask that God would help all of us to be receptive, to have hearts that will respond. Would you stand with me and let's close in a word of prayer. There are a few questions of reflection that you might want to think about in your life group, in your private time, in your family devotions, wherever you meditate on some of these things. Um, but one of the questions I would ask that we'd add to that is, is how has the re Lord revealed himself to you? What, what does it mean for you to step into the light of what you know about God because he has shown himself faithful to you? Let's pray. Father, we ask you to make us those who have ears to hear what you are saying. And Lord, would you help us to prize and treasure the incredible, precious seed of your word. Because all around us we are bombarded by so many other voices, so many other messages that are competing for your word. There are so many worries in our lives. There are the deceitfulness of our wealth, thinking that we can do it by ourselves. There is the desire for many other things on our hearts that creeps in like weeds in a garden. And Lord God, we long to have our hearts like freshly tilled soil, always ready to receive your seed that you plant in us. So Lord, as we hear and meditate on your truth this week, have your way and let us be fruitful and, and worthy Christians of your name, Jesus. We thank you so much for your goodness. And we ask you to help us to grow to be more like you pray in your name. Amen. Let me pronounce a, a benediction over you. And uh, as I read from this portion in Hebrews chapter 3, just before I, I dismiss us, um, those that are responsible for the lunch, if you could make your way downstairs. And as soon as the children are gathered from by their parents, uh, we are going to be setting up for the, uh, the meal. So you younger people, you have a few minutes to talk uh, up here before you go down for the meal. So it will probably be starting in about 15 minutes. And now see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence that we had at first. People of God, go in his peace.